Well, again, good morning and welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Greg and I'm one of the co-lead pastors here. Um, and we just uh, want to kind of let you all know that this, this morning is a challenging morning. Uh, and, and we enter this time with heavy hearts as we're aware of uh, the passing of our friend and sister Pam. And um, I, I just want to let you know, if you, you know, normally if we were together, we'd be crying and hugging and sharing stories. Um, and right now it's hard to do that. Um, and so if you feel the need to share stories or say something in the chat, uh, please feel free to do that. I encourage you to call one another and text each other. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a hard thing to navigate when, when we're not under these circumstances. And I think it's uh, just as, I think it's more difficult um, to do it when, when, when we can't have the things that we're used to. And so um, please do the things you need to do to care for one another um, and, to, and to remember Pam, who we loved. So um, with that, um, let's, let's pray. Dear Lord, we, uh, we do give you thanks that we can still engage together. We can still participate together and, and know that um, even though we are feeling the distance for sure this morning, that you can unite us uh, in ways that no geographical distance and, and, and really even what we read in your scripture is nothing can separate us from your love. Um, and so we experienced that this morning and we experienced your power to connect us and we ask that you would help us to to be together even though we are physically apart um yeah and we ask this in jesus name amen well we have been working through uh, a series that has been called the fruit of the spirit and we've been framing it with this analogy of a tree uh, of a fruit tree and I want us to say an apple tree this morning uh, and I have three reasons why I want it to be an apple tree one because they're delicious two because they're pretty important to the state of Washington uh, and three they get a bad rap as fruit specifically in the Bible um, actually not in the Bible but in how we talk about the story of the fall somehow the apple got connected to the fall with Adam and Eve and uh, the Bible never says that and so maybe this will help redeem apples a little bit um, but when I see a tree with apples growing on it, I feel pretty confident that not only is it a fruit tree, but it is indeed an apple tree. And uh, this guy, the Apostle Paul, one of the leaders of the early church, is saying there are things that should be cultivating and growing in the lives of a Christ follower that will allow people to see that they are indeed uh, following Christ. And he labeled these things the fruit of the Spirit, uh, fruit of the Holy Spirit. And these things were love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so the idea is that if we are living by the Holy Spirit, we should see these things uh, being cultivated in our lives. And I'll add in too that if we see this in the lives of other people, I think we should feel confident that that is the movement of the Holy Spirit uh, in the people and the world around us. Um, the other thing we've, we've talked about with this is that um, it's not so much that, that Paul is saying that each one of these things is an individual fruit, like love is an apple and joy is a pear and so on and so on, but that it's really like one 
fruit, uh, love, and these other ones are different ways that that love is expressed. Um, and so today we're going to be talking about gentleness. And, um, you know, I have a couple of images I do want to show um, because we see gentleness in a lot of different ways. This first one is just, just this really smooth, clear water. Um, you know, nice surrounding, uh, amazing picture, but just to me, I can enter into that, right? And I can feel what I, what I think of when I think of gentleness. Um, but this next one has action involved in it. And the, the, the caption says, Dutch brother staff comforts a woman in drive through after they notice her falling apart and find out her husband died unexpectedly the night before. And so we have people extending out and holding the hand of someone who is mourning, right? There's, there's gentleness doesn't just mean that there's no movement, no action, uh, but there's a way that it, uh, it can happen. And it used to be that we could show some clips like this and, and then just say like, and just go and be gentle uh, to one another. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that was good, but, but right now it feels different. That humanity and all of creation, I think, has been through a lot this past year. And it's not just this past year, a lot of it has been building for a long time. And I think things that make it really difficult and I actually think inappropriate to tell someone you need to be gentle in this situation or that you need to be expressing gentleness. And I want to quickly explore what I mean by that. If another human being was in uh, a, a situation where their life was threatened, right? Say they were uh, in a burning building or, or they were crossing a street and there was a car coming at them or maybe they were uh, swimming and, and they, you know, you saw that they were struggling, right? You might in that moment do something that may not be seen or may not feel or may not be gentle, right? If you had to tackle someone to get them out of the way of something that was going to hurt them, that might not be seen as gentle. So there are times, I believe, where gentleness as we think about it or often experience it may not be the thing that is needed in that moment. And I think there are things in our world right now where we are seeing that some people it is physical danger, some people it is emotional whole person danger that they are in. And so we see people having responses that don't necessarily feel gentle. But I would also add into this that in a time in our world where aggression Violence and oppression of all kinds are often mistaken or attached to the ideas of what it means to be strong, what it means to, to have power. Um, gentleness may be exactly um, what we need. With that, I want to read the passage again that we've been launching this out of. It's Galatians 5, 22 and 23. If you have your Bible, you can... Uh, pull it out and uh, go there or you can read it on the screen you can find it on our bible tab and the online platform or you can just listen along as I read it but it's Galatians 5 and 23 and it says this but the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace forbearance or patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control and against such things there is no law now, typically when we've gone through these, we've 
gone and found the dictionary definition of these words and we've looked at the Greek or if we jump back to the Old Testament we might pull in some Hebrew um, and we kind of compare and contrast. How do they match up? How do they not match up? Um, and sometimes we find they're really different and sometimes we find they're not. Um, and today is going to be just one of those cases. So I want to do the same thing. If we look at the Merriam-Webster definition of gentleness, it says the quality or state of being gentle, especially mildness of manners or disposition. And whenever you have a definition that says the quality of the state or being something, you should probably go look at what that something is. So I have in there the definition for gentle also. It means free from harshness, sternness or violence, docile, soft, delicate, moderate, honorable, distinguished, kind, and amiable. Now, if we look at what the Greek means in this, if we, we take a look at that, uh, the Greek word here is this word that is pronounced prautes, and it means mildness of disposition, gentleness of spirit, or meekness. And so it does have some, some similarities for sure. Uh, it shows up 11 times in the New Testament um, and for a couple of different reasons. The first one uh, is uh, uh, that I want to highlight. It regards how we are supposed to approach Scripture. Right? That when we receive the Word of God in James 1.21, it says we should do that with meekness. Right? So our attitude and our posture towards Scripture should be one of gentleness and meekness. Now there's another time that Paul uh, is writing to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 4.21. And he's asking them this uh, interesting question where he basically says, Would you rather I visit you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Um, and Paul is quite close to many of these churches that he writes to. And this one, for sure he was. And he's in the middle of a really delicate, complex, and difficult situation. Um, and I think, uh, as we often do when we're close to people, sometimes we say things in ways that uh, uh, we might not say out and about just to anyone. But what Paul is saying here is, look, I can either show up and be really hard with you, um, or I can come with love and a spirit of gentleness. Which, which would you like? Um, and so, uh, interesting use of the word there. And then the other ones that, that we have, um, you can see up on the screen there. Um, if you want to jot those down, you can, or just, just I'm not going to read through them all. But what those all do is they uh, all have to do with how we engage with other people. Right? Sometimes it's in general that, that, that we're said not to be quarrelsome, but to be gentle and meek in how we engage with people. Sometimes it's specific situations like uh, correcting someone. We should do so in gentleness and meekness with the hope of them uh, being better able to hear what it is that we're saying. Um, and really in, in all of these there is a sense that this is something that should be a sign or should be evidence to the world that we are Christ followers. That this is how the Spirit moves and it's something that's growing in our lives because of our engagement with the Spirit. But is that what this is really all about? Just sort of this is some, something we need to be gentle with people uh, and that'll show the world what it means to be a Christ follower and I can just unplug and see you later. Um, but that's not just it. Uh, especially because as there is in all scripture, there's a specific context that this was written into. A specific situation happening in Galatia that I think we need to attend to. And I, I, this will be good because it's going to help us understand what we're looking at today. But it's also going to help us in a couple of weeks when we start our series in Galatians. So the, 
what I'm going to call the short version, uh, hopefully it'll be short, uh, is this, that there's a group of people who'd begun to follow Jesus uh, who were not Jewish, making them uh, Gentiles. Which, uh, and they bump up against this reality that in following Jesus, they're to turn away from worshiping any idols, all other gods, all other idols, to worship the one true God. And the problem here is that in Galatia, because it was a, a city under the, the ruling authority of Rome, um, that there were idols everywhere, all over the place. And it was compulsory to worship them. So there's no real escape. There's portable, small household gods. And then there's massive temples and everything in between and often dedicated to Caesar or Rome. And so the gods were everywhere. There were daily, weekly, monthly, and annual processions, festivals, and sacrifices that people were required to participate. And it would be noticed if you didn't. Uh, scholar and theologian N.T. Wright says it would be like someone visibly flouting health and safety regulations at a time of deadly pandemic. Anyone who ignored the gods was assumed to be not just irresponsible but a dangerous social liability. Because in the ancient world if the gods weren't happy bad things happened to your city, happened to your family, happened to you. And one of the things that made the gods the most upset was to be neglected especially if those gods were emperors and rulers. Now, the Jewish population in the city, they were exempt from much of this as they'd been given explicit permission to abstain from worshiping these other gods. And the reasons for this were really pragmatic on Rome's part. Rome had discovered that the Jewish people believed that their God was the only one true God and that they would rather die than serve or worship these other gods. And so Rome struck a deal. Those that were Jewish could pray to their God, but they had to pray for Rome, pray for the Roman Empire, and pray for the Roman Emperor. And so these newly converted, converted Gentile Christians are trying to claim this exemption also. But it wasn't received well by the Jewish citizens in Galatia nor other local Roman citizens because both felt there was this group of non-Jewish people who were trying to claim Jewish privileges. This group of non-Jewish Jesus followers are pretending to be Jewish was the way it was seen while not following any of the customs or rituals that were so wrapped up with not just following the Jewish religion but being Jewish. It was wrapped up in the identity of what it meant to be Jewish. And then you have Paul throwing in things now that Jew, Jewish people and Gentiles are all equal members in this new family of God. And so there was lots of confusion and lots of tension and families were being broken apart and friends were not speaking to each other. Again, N.T. Wright said this would have been on the same level as our recent elections, um, issues around social justice in our country, uh, in the U.S., or Brexit in Britain. Um, and in terms of all that, the intensity of the debates and the breaking up of friendships and families would have been very similar to those situations. And so all of this amounted to this storm of sorts for this small and not really formed or super mature group of Jesus believers in Galatia. And so their neighbors might be suspicious of them, uh, resisting or abstaining from normal civic obligations of worshiping. Um, and the civic authorities wouldn't like this and they might need to get involved. And so it's a very hostile uh, environment. And Paul's writing to these churches in the midst of this. 
And so then we have to ask, well then what does gentleness then look like in that space? It seems like it is something more than just saying, be nice when it's easy or when it feels good. This is gentleness in the midst of some chaos. This is gentleness in the midst of families and friends no longer speaking to one another, much like many of us today are experiencing. Now I want to take a moment for a quick aside here because I want to make sure that we're all aware of something. That um, when I'm talking about maybe responding in gentleness, I am not in any way, shape, or form saying that people should remain in abusive relationships, nor am I talking about refraining from taking action against evil and evil actions. Because in those situations, the, the, the option of gentleness may look different. Right? Gentleness might be, I get out of that situation so that either others who are better able to handle it can, or I can get out of it, seek help, and then be part of responding to it. Because gentleness is not letting people get away with things. I actually believe we have a biblical call to stand against evil. And there's plenty of evil happening in the world we live in today. But along with that is also a call to respond differently than the world would. One of the main messages we read when we read the book of Revelation is how you deal with Rome. Rome is the empire that is dominant in that time and there's a lot of stuff in Revelation about engaging with that. And one of the main themes is that in fighting Rome, fighting the evil that exists, you cannot become that same evil in the process. You cannot fight Rome with Rome's tactics lest you become just another form of Rome. Excuse me. And so... It's one of the things as we explore gentleness that is important too. Now, I want to kind of try to wrap all this stuff up and, and, and put it together. But to do that, I want us to journey back a little bit to the Old Testament to an account of a guy named Elijah. Elijah was a major player in the Old Testament who was often likened to Moses in terms of his influence and leadership. He was a prophet, which meant that he was a person who was known for speaking the truth, speaking the word of God to Israel. Uh, and even at times when that didn't, work well, that Israel was not in a good place to hear it, and so they would often clash. Um, and so we're going to be looking at a specific moment in Elijah's life. It's in 1 Kings 19. We're going to start with verse 3. And again, uh, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. If not, I'm going to read it and you can uh, listen along. But while you're getting to those spaces, a little bit of backstory. Uh, Israel at this time, the nation of God, the people of God has strayed from God to the point where they are now worshiping other gods, specifically this God named Baal. Uh, a guy named Ahab is the king and his wife Jezebel. They have been keys in leading this movement uh, away from worshiping Yahweh, the one true God uh, of Israel, and uh, shifting over to this other God. Uh, in the process of doing this, they've sort of uh, led this hunt for uh, lots of the prophets of Israel and killed many of them. Uh, and this led up to this sort of uh, epic cosmic cage match between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and Baal, this other God, and, and Elijah set up this, this kind of contest where they had big piles of wood, and they had a bull that was going to be sacrificed on the top of those, and the contest was whichever God sort of rains down fire on that, uh, those altars that he set up, 
would be the, the God. And um, so the Baal, the prophets of Baal and their priests did a bunch of stuff and it didn't work. Nothing was happening. And uh, at this point, Elijah begins to taunt them a little bit, which may not have been the best thing to do, but that was the mood he was in, I suppose. And so he's doing that. And then he prays after they douse the, the, the pile of wooden stuff with a bunch of water so it should be more difficult to burn. He prays and very quickly, Yahweh brings down fire and the, the wood and the bowl are both incinerated along with some of the ground around it. And then Elijah decides, let's kill all the prophets of Baal that are here. Uh, and so they, they go and do that. Um, Ahab and Jezebel respond um, by Jezebel basically sends a message saying, um, if I have not done to you, Elijah, what you did to my prophets by tomorrow, um, yeah, you just need to know that's I'm coming to kill you. Uh, and so here's where we pick up um, in uh, verse 3 of 1 Kings 19. It says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard this, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. And the Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram, also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elijah, son of Shaphat from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elijah, Elisha will put to death any who escape the word of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bound down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. And we'll end with that. Now, the situation starts off and there's a ton of escalation, 
right? And it leads to Elijah fleeing for his life into the wilderness. And if you've been with us for a while, you know that we've talked about the wilderness before, that in Scripture, the wilderness has a meaning beyond its just straightforward meaning. The authors of Scripture use it to denote a place and time of harsh testing, trial, and often suffering. It's a place where things that we may have tried to hide about ourselves get exposed, or things we may have ignored about ourselves get revealed. And it describes a place where most or all of the things that we typically rely on for support, things to hold us up and help us navigate things, all of those things don't often work. Have you ever been in a place or a time that felt like that? You find yourself unable to do the things you can usually do, or for some reason the things that have been a support and a help to you in the past are no longer able to do that. You might feel alone, helpless, afraid, angry. I think Elijah's feeling all those things plus exhaustion. The, the journey and all the things that happened before it with the battle and all that stuff I think have brought him to the point of exhaustion. We can see that he's going from moment to moment by the nourishment of the angels. So Elijah comes to this cave in Horeb, which is an important place in scripture. It's where Moses encountered the burning bush. And in fact, Israel throughout the book of Exodus spends most of his time in that area. And so it's historically important. It's a God place. And God asks Elijah, what are you doing here? Elijah's response, I'm here because of you. I'm here because of my passion for you. And the people have rejected you and demonstrated that they've abandoned you by tearing down all the sacred places, by killing all the other prophets. And now they're trying to kill me too. And in this moment of discouragement, God says, go to the front of the cave. I'm going to be there. And then this great wind that tears mountains apart and crushes rocks passes by. The Lord's not in it. An earthquake and the Lord's not in it. And this great fire and the Lord's not in that. When in the past we read in other parts of the Old Testament that occurred before this that all of these things have been at times a show of God's presence. Right? Whether it be the, you know, the, the fire that led Israel through the desert. Right? Or the wind that is so often associated with the Spirit of God. But where is God? Not in any of those things right now. God's in the gentle or the thin silence. Walter Brueggemann calls it a moment of no voice, no sound, but a silence laden with a sense of holiness. What we see in this moment is that the wind, the earthquake, and the fire are no longer adequate to represent and show who God is. That in this moment, God is not the loud, demonstrative, but the gentle, thin silence. It isn't until he hears this gentle or thin silence that he even moves. All the other things have been happening and we have no indication that he's moved at all. But when it says there was this thin, gentle silence, there's this moment and you can almost step into it where you can imagine all this stuff has been going on and then all of a sudden it's quiet. And Elijah's like, wait, wait, wait. 
What is that? Is God in that? And he goes out and he encounters God again. And he doesn't find the word of the Lord there. It's the presence of God. There's a shift in the language that is used. It's not the word of the Lord that has come to him now. It is God. Because Elijah didn't need a word in that moment. He needed the presence of God. The gentle, faithful presence of God. God is present out there in that silence. And it's after that that a word is given. After that, the direction is given. After that, the something is given. And the question's repeated. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah's response is the same. I've been zealous for you. Israelites have gone astray. They've killed all the prophets except for me and now they're trying to come after me too. And the Lord this time says, go back. Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus and then he gives this list of things that he's to do. But instead of stay here longer and rest or whatever, he says, you've been given rest in my presence. You've been given rest by being known fully by me. Now you're able to go. Go and do the next thing that is for you. And for Elijah, that was go back to the conflict. Go back to the trouble. Go back to the risk. That God's gentleness and presence allowed Elijah to re-engage and make a difference. I want us to notice that God is aware of Elijah and all his needs. And because of that, God is able to provide Elijah with what he needs in that moment to carry out the work that God has set before him. So often, we're so eager for the next move that we don't sit and allow God's gentle presence to allow us to be known. I have a prayer by Walter Brueggemann that I want to read for you. And it's a little bit long, but, but hang in there. Um, it goes like this. The priest says, Almighty God, from whom no secrets are hid, we rush to the next phrase, but now linger there. We are rich conundrums of secrets. We weave a pattern of lies in order to, well thought of, we engage in a subterfuge about our truth. We carry old secrets too painful to utter, too shameful to acknowledge, too burdensome to bear, of failures we cannot undo, of elite of alienations we regret but cannot fix, of grandiose exhibits we cannot curb. And you know them. You know them all. And so we take a deep sigh in your presence, no longer needing to pretend and cover up and deny. We mostly do not have big sins to confess, only modest shames that do not fit our hoped-for selves. And then we find that your knowing is more powerful than our secrets. You know and do not turn away. And our secrets that seemed too powerful are emptied of strength. Secrets that seemed too burdensome are now less severe. We marvel that when you find us out, you stay with us, taking us seriously, taking our secrets soberly, but not ultimately, overpowering our little failure with your massive love and abiding patience. We long to be fully honestly exposed to your gaze of gentleness. In the moment of your knowing, we are eased and lightened and we feel the surge of joy move in our bodies. 
because we are not ours in cringing, but yours in communion. We are yours and find the truth before you makes us free for wonder, love, and praise, and new life. In Matthew 1, 28 through 30, Jesus says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus provides for us the rest of being fully known in a relationship with someone who can know us that intimately and still absolutely and fully love us. The rest of no longer having to pretend or live up to anything. And that gentleness allows us to re-engage with the world and with the evil going on around us. And in that we are invited to treat people that same way. That our attitude, posture, and hearts towards those around us and really everyone should be one of love expressed in gentleness. That we would move with strength and courage in ways that help people to feel safe and that they can be real, heard, and known. I have just three quick examples of this that I want to share from my own life. Uh, Two of them are from my kids. One is from my oldest daughter, Gianna, who... um, Uh, my family was at uh, a memorial service for a friend of mine's uh, mother and this friend of mine uh, sang this song um, and it was uh, it was a beautiful song um, and uh, and it was very emotional for my friend and and I was feeling that for him and and also I knew uh, my friend's mom and so I was sad also and it was all the things where I'm shaking and crying and I had my hands on my knees um, And I felt a hand on my hand. Um, And I looked and it was my oldest daughter, Gianna, who was just comforting me, right? But it was very gentle and and without a a fear or a a weirdness of like, oh, this is my dad and, and, you know, and, and he's supposed to be all this. It was very much, I'm someone who cares for you and I can see that this is hard. And so... Just her hand on my hand and the look in her eye was gentle and comforting. My younger daughter, Mariella, when we walk, lots of times she'll still reach out and and grab my hand. And it is the same kind of thing. Or when we're watching a movie, I'm a a total crier during movies. And so both both my girls will often uh, either give me a look um, to say, hey, you know, we understand it's okay for you to be this way in this space with, with us and we love you and they'll, you know, give a gentle hand or lean their shoulder up uh, or lean their head up against my shoulder or something. It's, it's all very kind and gentle. Um, and then uh, the other one is just remembering our friend and sister Pam. Um, you know, as, as I became aware of her passing, I was feeling lots of feelings, but uh, I will say being in this space and being without all of you to remember together um, is really hard. Um, And as we sang, I was trying to run slides and I was all over the place because I was just, I was remembering where Pam would sit and how Pam would dance and... uh, 
and just remembering how gentle and kind she was. And I know she had moments where she could be loud and, and would get angry, but I think her overall demeanor, at least towards me, was very gentle and kind. Um, and so just, just remembering who she was on this morning um, as we talk about this, um, that she seems to, in a lot of ways, embody that. Um, and so how, how then can we go and do things like that in our world? Um, and, and I don't have connection card questions this morning, but I'm going to put the Galatians verse back up. Um, and, and I have one challenge, and then after that I'm going to pray, and then Brian's going to give you a moment to reflect and then close us with a song and a benediction. And our prayer team will be available for you if you need any prayer. But um, the, the thing I want us to, to think about is as our world, our families, neighborhoods, cities, uh, countries, nation, planet, all that, um, we're, we're heading into some transitions as we shift out from under some the, the regulations from the coronavirus and lots of places are on the verge of being lifted um, and um, there's, there's kids graduating and summertime and there's just lots of transitions um, and people feeling a lot of things and uh, needing a lot of care including us um, so my challenge and my question then is I want you to start imagining what what these things, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, what do those look like lived out in the midst of a changing world? The, the issues of social justice and racism and all the things that we have been encountering this past year. What do, as we transition through all of those, what do these things look like in your life? Um, whether they're being expressed by the love you show or whether you're receiving those, what does that look like? And, and I want to ask you to begin to imagine really as specifically as you can what, what that would look like. And so as I'm going to pray and then again Brian will reflect and start that process. And if you have some things that come to mind, you feel free to send those to us through the online connection card or email or, how, or however you would. We would love to hear those. So let's pray and then we'll close with a song and benediction. God, I'm thankful that you are present in all the different things that we go through. And that Jesus, you have said that you are gentle and you give us rest for our souls. Um, so I pray that we would be experiencing that now so that we may express that um, in our lives um, and, that, and that people would sense that and that we can really see the fruit of the Spirit growing and changing the world that we live in. Help us to be part of your process of bringing flourishing to all people. Um, yeah, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.